Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the diner in the beachcombers, the important Canadian comedy drama relentlessly shown by ITV in the 70s, was called Molly's Reach, which bizarrely is now a real-life diner called Molly's Reach. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is writer and terminally online social media manager, it says here, Genevieve Jenner. Genevieve, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Mostly I'm being recluse. I am on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also read my book if you don't actually want to engage with me online. And that's called Chocolate Cake for Imaginary Lives. Okay, well, I've no idea whether there were any books based on your first choice, which is something which was completely alien to me. And ironically, has puppets in it that looked a bit like aliens and looked a bit like something else. But we'll come back to that in a minute. sings on there with the opening song from Boomerang. Genevieve, what was this? It was a regional television show found in Seattle, which is where I grew up. And it was on in the late 70s and early 80s. All around the United States until sort of the deregulation of television in the Reagan years, there would be all kinds of little regional television shows and programming for children. And this was one of them with puppets and sort of teaching little life lessons and singing and so on. And it was hosted by a woman called Marnie Nixon, who is better known to some people as the woman who was the singing voice for a number of movie musicals. She did the voice for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, Deborah Carr in The King and I, and she also did this. And so, yeah, it was her and some puppets. Yes, these puppets. I've got to get this out of the way. (laughs) Now, there was a certain other programme that started not long before this did, and it looks as though they didn't get a designer or a puppet maker to do these. They got a child and said, draw Muppets. And yes, the kid said, yes. don't you mean the Muppets? And said, no, just Muppets without the third to start. It's like somebody's bad dream about the Muppets. It's maybe someone's craft project of the Muppets. Maybe they decided to draw a picture and see if they could copy it. You know, it was before YouTube tutorials that could show you how to do things. So they, yeah, kind of created a discount version of Bert from Sesame Street. His name was Norbert, as I recall. And I remember that he was kind really? of... Like, so he's like, he was Norbert. Yeah, and I just remember that he was kind of, this sounds terrible to say about a puppet, but he seemed like he didn't have a good handle on emotional regulation. (laughs) And I understand he's supposed to be childlike, but he could be kind of passive aggressive and prone to, you know, losing his cool easily. See, I've got no frame of reference really for this at all, apart from there are a couple of fragmentary clips on YouTube and a couple of pages where people talk about it very, very earnestly, not the kind of I was entertained slash terrified by this as a child just they talk very straight-facedly about its educational credentials and all the awards that it won and so on i'm surprised it hasn't left a larger footprint given that apparently there was a theme single 
That's the one thing I found oh, out. Gosh. I don't like any other merchandise. Yes. Who would want to own that song on a record? I don't know. But, you know, it was big enough for that. I think it would be something for children who would just want to listen to it over and over and over again. Again, before the days of just on-demand streaming, it was, here, you could put this on and calm the child for about, you know, 20 seconds. You know, if you talk to people of a certain age who grew up there, you could probably put it on and there would be some sort of response like, oh my goodness. I had a kind of a different response to the theme because watching it as a small child, I would watch the opening theme and there would be this one part where a child would leap into a pile of hay and they would bury him. And then the song would go on and the children would go on elsewhere and I would spend this eternity of anxiety going, what happened to that child? Oh my God, is this child <laughs> suffocating? You know, someone get that poor child out from under the hay. And so when I would hear the theme, I would just kind of get all wound up and nervous, but then I would want to watch the show. So you could probably, you know, go to any of my therapists and they would go back to that moment and go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where you were broken. I am fascinated, though, by the whole, as you mentioned, there was that scenario where there would be regional television in America that was huge in the region and not really seen. I mean, apparently Boomerang was shown in a couple of other countries. It was never shown over here, I don't think, but not really in other yeah. American states. And it's like that very odd thing about, because I'm a huge fan of, you know, the 60s garage bands, the sort of bands that are halfway between the British invasion and psychedelic music. Oh, yeah. There is that weird situation with them where you would get bands like, say, the E-Types or the Nightcrawlers that were huge in their home state. They could walk down the street and then, oh, yes, you know, yeah, cross the state like line that. and nobody knew who they were. And that seems, oh, you absolutely. know, coming from this yeah. miserable little island, that seems very odd to me. <laughs> Although we did have, ITV used to have a regional structure where it had its own broadcaster for, I never quite understood how they divided up the UK. It seemed to be quite arbitrary, but they were required to make kind of a specified amount of regional programming which did include yes. children's programs like on here before Justin Lewis talked about Orbit which was in Wales which was presented by a man called Alan Taylor and a very frightening looking squeaking alien called Chester but one that I always <laughs> remember from the Granada region Hey It's My Birthday too, which I've always wanted to bring up on here which is basically one of the continuity announcers it was to do with some anniversary of Granada and if it was your birthday within a certain time frame you could write in and they'd say it was your birthday too and I was Furious because wherever it started, it ended the day before my birthday. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. <laughs> I presented this program that, you know, I even remember the trailer for it saying, you know, if your birthday is between these dates, write in. I remember the theme music, which is this quacking synthesizer thing. I remember it had, it opened with animation of a boy sort of walking down the street, like shouting, you know, with his hands around his mouth. Obviously, it was his birthday. Lots of passers by sort of well wished him. And the policeman did that knees bend thing <laughs> they haven't done since the 80s. That tradition's to be gone everywhere now. Which is a shame because, you know, you would have your own you know, sort of little identity to where you were. There was another element to Boomerang that, you know, kind of has a funny connection for me is that my mother didn't really like me to watch the show. And it came about that she had worked with Marty Nixon and she had found that Miss Nixon was a challenging personality to work with. And so to see her on the television and my, you know, and her child enjoying this very, you know, happy-go-lucky woman, it just, it didn't sit well with her. And I do recall her saying of Miss Nixon that she was a, a second-rate Julie Andrews. So, I mean, I felt kind of conflicted between my mother's opinions and also a bunch of puppets and some singing, which maybe makes me sound a little bad that I could, you know, sorry, mother, I can't be loyal. There's puppets. Well, I did find out about Marnie Nixon. I never knew this. Was it she was Andrew Gold? 
Wood's mother. Yes. As in the yeah. 70s Never Let Her Slip Away hitmaker. Yes. I mean, this is the man that gave us the Golden Girls theme. He is a good and pure man, so she did bring good to this world. What is really disturbing me, though, is the idea that obviously this ran for a number of years in the Seattle area, and it was clearly very widely loved, oh, yes. even if your mother didn't like it. So <laughs> yeah. that must mean that people like members of Nirvana and some of the people involved in Starbucks must have been watching it. Oh, yes, yes. And I remember that... I I think a few years back there'd been some rumor that the puppets had been sold at a garage sale you know just discarded and people were truly upset and it, it turned out it was just another sad muppet like puppet that just sort of looked similar and that the puppets actually did end up somewhere good and safe and that's known as the museum of history and industry in seattle so it has a lot of regional objects and memories that mean a lot to people so the puppets did end up in a good place well i think that's a good enough a point as any on which to move on to your next choice, which could not really be more different for Boomerang if we tried. It's another TV show, another quite niche one, but like oh, I yeah. say, there's no Norbert in this one. No, shame. I mean, if only more television shows had puppets, I would be the happiest woman alive. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, where are you going? Chattanooga. My mother called me this morning and said, you have got two days to get down here and get that armoire you have always wanted, or I'm giving it to the goodwill. So I'm going. A journey home, how wonderful. I've rented a 15-foot truck. I just love driving a truck. You know what they used to call me down south? Mud flaps. <laughs> Mud flaps, Martin. You know, it's that thing behind the top. Never mind. Well, why don't I accompany you? Because I'm leaving right now. You couldn't possibly get ready in time. Oh, certainly I could. Don't you have some appointments? No. Nope. Phone calls? No. Well, you, you'll have to pack. No. I always have my get-out-and-stay-out bag ready. Well... Oh, please, please, please. I'm so bored. I have no life. Please let me come with you on the drive. Well, I could use some help driving, and I do like company on the road. Well, I'm wonderful company. And on most standard map scales, the upper section of my pinky equals exactly 50 miles. Okay, you're riding shotgun. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really good. Okay, bit of dialogue there with a couple of voices you might remember from Over the Top. Not the Sylvester Stallone film, but it's just a sitcom. Genevieve, what was going on there? Oh, gosh. This was on for about three episodes, and somehow I saw all of them. It starred Annie Potts and Tim Curry, and they played ex-wife, ex-husband, and she's living in New York, running a hotel with her children from other marriages, and he shows up. He'd been a soap opera actor, and, you know, he's down on his luck. And somehow he kind of comes into her life again and causes good chaos. He sort of, I, I think about it now in terms of tropes, sort of the, the trickster fairy godfather character to try and bring some good and, you know, make amends while still being a troublemaker. And it had a lot of character actors and actors who later became really big. Yeah, the really interesting thing that I found out about it was, as far as I can tell, it was not shown over here. Whereas we did have quite a tradition, no. particularly in the 90s, of shows that in America, have been, you know, yanked off after two or three episodes, like the Marshall Chronicles, or as I can never help but call it, Marshall the Chronicles, because that's yes. what the logo said. Teach, which nobody remembers, which is about a kind of high school full of preppy achieving. I think it was, I think it was an all boys school. Yes. Who is going to want to watch a sitcom about being 
really successful boys and nearly departed, which is Eric Idle as a ghost, we would get the yes. whole run of things, including the unearthed episodes over here. But Over the Top wasn't even shown on Channel 5. And believe me, in the 90s, when Channel 5 was first launched, that was a very low set bar. So they must have wow. taken one look at it and thought, no. Which is a shame because, so I saw the original episodes and then they have a few more of them on YouTube and I watched them. And it was obviously finding its legs, but it was also being messed about with too much, I think, by executives. I think when you let a show kind of have the actors and the writers kind of workshop what they're doing, you know, it might take that first season to find that rhythm. And then, you know, it could go and do great things. But it, I kind of got the impression that it was a lot of people trying to want <laughs> to add their two cents and shape it and like well how about we focus group it this way and that versus the organic artistic process which is a shame because I thought it had a really interesting concept plus two really good actors well there could be something in that because one of the main things I found out about it was there is a long-standing rumor that it was originally only commissioned because the producer was having an affair with an executive at ABC and then they <laughs> broke up and other people moved on to the project and so oh, how messy so that would have <laughs> been kind of half i've got to change this so that you know they don't get involved in some kind of legal dispute over ownership of ideas but also i'm new to this i just want to change it but apparently the characters were based on tim curry and annie potts had a long-standing i don't think it was ever romantic but you know very close no, personal friendship very close friendship yeah yeah and it was partly inspired by that so yeah they, had, they do have real natural chemistry i was gonna say yeah it seems to me like they are a really good thing in the middle of something that otherwise doesn't quite know what he wants to do. Yes, exactly. And you could see they wanted to add certain good supporting characters that are part of the whole sort of swirl of chaos. But yeah, it seemed like it was two or three different shows at once. But when they're together, it's really fun to watch them. And further down the cast list, one person I noticed was John O'Hurley, who's always yes. fascinated me because you know, I love Seinfeld, but it was never really a huge thing over here. Or at least it wasn't before, you know, streaming services services right everything because it was on they tried it on bbc2 uh sort of i think eight o'clock nine o'clock but they started with it might be in season two and you know that was the wrong it's like when they started with the simpsons they started at prime time on bbc one with season one which okay. is a very very silly thing to do so seinfeld didn't take off they moved it to it was always on around midnight over here so it's a huge uh. cult thing but obviously john o'hurley very well known in america years later they did an international strictly come dancing you know with the winners of the international version because he won Dancing with the Stars. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. on it and they had to say, you know him best as Jay Peterman from Seinfeld. And like Most people watching would not have known him at all, never mind best. Oh, I'd never considered that. Yeah, in the US, he's the sort of character actor that just sort of appears and floats about everywhere. And then he also hosted some game shows and he has a very, you know, illustrious speaking voice. So, you know, that's John O'Hurley. And he played a very repressed character on the show, which was kind of entertaining. And also Steve Carell, I think in one of yes. his earliest roles, who played the Greek yes. chef. And he now completely owns, you know, the relative failure of Over the Top. In a way yeah. that he doesn't say, oh my God, I regret that or sneer at it. But he just, he uses the fact that he was in this thing that did not last very long. as sort of just a, you know, a recurring humorous personal anecdote. Well, it's one of those things that it should have been an early success in his career. If you look at, you know, how it looked on paper. But 
but it shows you can have everything in your corner and it can just fall flat on its face, which is really the whole, you know, story of Hollywood. Something else I noticed, which I had no idea that even existed, was Annie Potts moved on to this from a spin-off TV series from Dangerous Minds. Yes, the incredibly hyped Michelle Pfeiffer movie with the Coolio theme song that nobody remembers now. Because it didn't really <laughs> I recall it. I'm not sure what the international situation was, but it didn't really do the business over here. And so no, I was astonished no, it... to find it was a TV series. Oh yes. I do recall sort of that era of like, can we adapt it to television like they did that with Clueless and a few other things. I like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, with Jennifer Ranston in it. Yes. yes. And most of them didn't really go very far. So it was, you know, good luck for Annie Potts in a way. Do you know about the Friday the 13th series? No. They realised very late in the day that they could not get the rights to Jason. And Um, so it became about, I think, a brother and sister who were vaguely related to him in some way, who ran a sort of curiosity shop where there was a sort of paranormal story behind everything that was in it. Wow. It literally related to Friday the 13th only in name. (laughs) And it was supposed to rival. They did Freddy's Nightmares, which is Freddy Krueger doing a kind of sort of Twilight Zone-style anthology series, but horror rather than sci-fi. And the two were never going to compete on equal terms. Oh how tragic so would you recommend Over the Top to anyone who's never seen it and bear in mind that's probably going to be most people listening to this I think so in a way just to sort of capture a bit of 90s American television that wasn't you know juggernaut level like Friends but seeing Tim Curry in a rare sitcom lead role because he's only done like two of them and just sort of seeing how his chemistry with Annie Potts I think that's worth it it's a shame that they couldn't have done more together but I just like watching actors who really work well together even if the material isn't great but they know how to you know work with the moment that to me is really exciting well i'm wondering if that is going to factor in your next choice which is a movie that i completely forgotten existed here's the trailer for it okay. and we'll come on to how i ended up seeing it in a minute when the heat of romance there we are. You okay <sighs> starts making you crazy don't blame it on yourself Go. I love you. I love you. Very sexy. For that, the referee will give you a red card. Blame it on the bossa nova. I'm supposed to meet someone here in Rio. An incredibly hot cyberspace pen pal. A wild, outrageous. What if I happened to dinner in a movie? Gary. Hey. Okay, what else could that be but a trailer for a film called Bossa Nova? Genevieve, take us to the cinema. Oh, hurrah. It is a Brazilian-American film, kind of a romantic comedy with some screwball comedy elements. It's definitely a fairy tale version of Rio because, you know, there's no poverty. It's just glamorous people. And it stars Amy Irving, who was married to the director at the time. And she's an English teacher. And she is sort of slowly being wooed by this man who is a lawyer. And there's all these sort of intertwined love stories and or attempted love stories 
stories going on. And I think it stands out to me, besides a really fantastic soundtrack, is it shows an early example of online dating communication. I mean, there was, you've got mail, but this is a little bit different where they do sort of know each other. But, you know, you couldn't quite Google people in those days and find out if someone really was an artist in Soho or if they were a glamorous model or something. But even when they do finally get together and, you know, meet each other, you know, what happens is somewhat accurate to what I recall from the early days of internet dating. So it's kind of a nice little bit of history. And yet it's also kind of classic romantic comedy of when people finally meet and, you know, the sparks that fly or don't fly in some cases. Yeah, the thing I really remember about it was it did go in hard on that, like you say, that online romance thing. It's more accurate to say online romance than dating, really, because that's the whole thing about the dating apps did not exist back then. I mean, the nearest thing was hot or not, which do people even remember that? Where you read whether people are hot or not. What was really weird about that was that, I don't know how this kept happening, but for some reason, women kept putting up photos of themselves meeting Richard Herring. I don't know what was going on there, really. But this is a snapshot of when it was, it was kind of an adjunct to real life conversations in those days, what passed for internet romancing then. And I think that's something that very much got lost very quickly, where it's almost like writing letters through, you know, like a Lonely Hearts column that used to get in magazines. That's what it was like. And then I think people just saw the opportunity, A, to capitalise on that, and B, to be massive, awful pervs. Well, I also noticed, like, within it that, you know, the woman that was beginning this online romance she couldn't really tell people because, you know, how would you explain it to people? And I remember friends who met people online and they began to date them. And when they would be asked by friends or family members, how did you meet? They would just sort of lie at first and say friends of friends. Like I knew people who got married and didn't admit till years later to other people or members of their family that they met that person online, like on like forums or chat rooms because there was such a, you know, stigma. Oh, what was wrong with you? You can't go out and meet people like a normal human. Nobody was concerned that this person might be hiding some dark secret. You know, yeah. like it was more, how are you so sad? I'm like, yes. sorry. <laughs> I also like that it, it captures that these two people haven't been totally honest about who they are and that they're actually both quite ordinary people and, you know, exciting things happen. And it's also very important to point out that the ordinary man in this online romance is played by Stephen Tobolowsky. So it's a great character role. As they say, hey, it's that guy actor. And his character doesn't seem flashy at first, but it turns out really sexy. And he's kind of exciting. And, you know, he's also like incredibly horny. And that's sort of like, oh, well, that makes you look at him a little differently. There, I said it. I find him very hot and wood. Yes, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it is in some ways, it is quite a steamy film. It has, without resorting to cliches, it gets the, you know, the kind of, should we say, the Latin lover vibe going. It's a bit like The Love Boat or Off Hades Hotel for aspirational people. Yes. Well, I think one of the most sort of romantic moments is when this one character, it looks like he's about to grope her, Amy Irving's character. And then you realize he is measuring her waist and the length of, you know, from her neck to her waist. And what he does with that information is, you know, one of the most romantic and thoughtful things I've ever seen, you know, in cinema. It was original to me. Well, there is a story about how I saw this, which is I don't think it got a cinema release over. Over here, but I ended up oh. seeing it because I very, very early on got a DVD player 
The reason for that being, I was in HMV one day and I saw the complete series of The Prisoner on DVD. And I thought, I don't care what a DVD player is. I am buying that. And then there's a richer sound saying, can I have a DVD player, please? Which I did. (laughs) And then, obviously, I wanted to watch more things on it. And there weren't that many things available. But the local blockbuster had some DVDs, one of which was this. And I watched it and really enjoyed it. And then, I think it might be the year or so later, but I noticed Bruno Barretto, the director, had another DVD in Blockbuster, which I think had come out since, called View from the Top. Oh, which yes. had a really impressive cast. I mean, I think there was Gwyneth Paltrow, Christina Applegate, Joshua Molina yeah. was in it, Candice Bergen, Mark Ruffalo was in it, Rob Lowe, oh, Kelly Preston, Mike Myers, and I, you know, picked that up, seeing the director, seeing the cast, and thinking, this is going to be brilliant. Now, that film has an aggregate review site score of 12%, and I don't think I would oh, dispute yes. it. I think even some of Gwyneth Paltrow didn't rate it very highly herself. No, I think everyone involved actually should, just out of generosity should have clubbed together and retroactively paid for my DVD player. <laughs> well, it sort of shows how a director can have two wildly different outputs. But Bossa Nova itself is really good. I will say that. Having oh, gone on about brilliant. films that don't work for about five minutes. And the minutes. soundtrack. I encourage everyone to listen to the soundtrack. You know, you get this wonderful Bossa Nova Samba jazz effort. I mean, the film is dedicated to Antonio Carlos Jovim and Francois Truffaut. So you can see sort of where the influences are for every element. Okay, we'll move on to your next choice now, who are a trio who, let's just say, they might find a very slight different take on Bossa Nova. <laughs> Johnny was a kid who grew up in the city. His mother was a drunk and his dad had lots of money. Because when he was 18, he took a baseball bat that was a Louisville slugger and smashed out all the windows of his dad's Cadillac. That was a Coupe de Ville. They said that he was okay. That was a bit of the I hope I'm saying this right. Thorazine Shuffle by Bongo's Bass and Bob. I didn't know this, and I was quite astonished to find out who one of the people involved was. Genevieve, who were Bongo, Bass and Bob? How do I describe this? It's sort of a comedy musical trio, and the the one sort of significant person in this trio is Penn Jillette. You know, it's not like he's not a funny man, obviously, you know, his work says a lot, but it, it is a bit peculiar to find him in what ended up being kind of a college radio hit in the night, you know, more in the 90s. Yes, it's something I wasn't really aware of beforehand, but they did one album brilliantly yes. titled Nevermind the Sex Pistols here's Bongo's Bass and Bob which has got a song on it I love this title called Temporarily Like Bob Dylan which you know <laughs> we live in a universe of terrible Bob Dylan parodies every Bob Dylan parody has been terrible except this this is really good oh it's genius I have to thank my friend Molly Riverstone for introducing me to this when we were teenagers and she just said you really need to listen to this it is unlike anything else she's always had amazing taste in music I remember laying on her bed and listening to it and just laughing uncontrollably. A pendulette was playing. He was bass on it. Yes. But Bongo's was Dean J. Seal, who I don't know very much about. Guitar, as in Bob, was Rob Elk, who for a long time, he's been better known as 
the Sideman for Maureen Tucker from the Velvet Underground. Mm. He's played on most of their solo tours and albums. There's also a credit for Rudy Teller on organ, which obviously Teller is Ray Teller, but it's a relative of his, I wonder. But also, Fred Frith on violin from the British prog rock band Henry Cow. How did he get involved? It sounds sort of like a silly night at a party that sort of just got out of hand, and they actually decided to go through with this, you know, idea they had. And it is genuinely a comedy, you know, a humorous musical project, whereas a lot of comedians tend to do their serious album, (laughs) which never really tends to work out well, I must say. But there were a few people around that point doing sort of, mainly over here, but in character, comedy musical things. Craig Ferguson, who obviously is now, you know, well, he's a huge name in America. He had an act called Bing Hitler. It was sort of an offensive cabaret entertainer. Of course, of course. What else would you like? It was quite a thing around that, but then it seemed to really fall from favour because Steve Coogan tried to do a character called Tony Farino, who I thought was brilliant. It was sort of based on, you know, the Julio Iglesias, Engelbert Humperdinck sort of yes. smooth, easy listening guy, but he'd murdered all his brothers who were in a close harmony singing group with him, but the police had never caught him and things like that. And he had all <laughs> these ex-wives who had disappeared in mysterious circumstances. But he did an album with his brother, who was a member of the Mock Turtles, who were a 90s indie band, where they wrote these really good pastiche songs but people didn't seem to it was odd they didn't seem to want that side of it it was like it was all right when he did the tv special but the album just bombed it's very odd it seemed to be more acceptable in the 80s than it became in the 90s maybe it was just seen as a little cheap grab for a little more money just do television and don't think you can do anything else pen gillette is one of those fascinating people though where he does seem to want to try to do everything he's interested in and i think that's why on paper he is somebody i should not like because some of his political leanings are a little libertarian i was gonna say interesting to say the least euphemistically oh, but you know, he's, he's a fellow of the cato institute so even that he talks about it in a very engaging way and doesn't try and i mean he tries to enforce it on you know big business and politicians and so on but the way he presents it he doesn't force it on other people and i think it's because he has that wide-ranging set of interests and views i do have to say though we talk about how some things were more acceptable at different points, particularly comedy-wise. And you know, mentioning Craig Ferguson, there was that thing in the late 80s where, as far as I'm concerned, it started off as an extension of alternative comedy. It was right on. It's people like him, Jerry Sadovitz, were doing comedy that pushed past... You know, you got the offensiveness in the old school, you know, with sexism and racism and so on. But they were pushing beyond the boundaries of taste to prove a kind of point. And this being called Thorazine Shuffle. Now, that's another thing I can never say this chloroposamine i think which is used to treat psychotic disorders yes if you can imagine i don't know who's a television magician now but somebody like that teaming up with two sort of alt rock musicians and doing a similar song now i don't think it will play very well no no that's why it always seemed so appropriate for college radio where it would be played at like 2 a.m you can't get offended at 2 a.m because if you're up at 2 a.m there's obviously some kind of character defect going on the same sort of thing that has you looking at pimple popping videos on YouTube at 2 a.m. You know, no judgment, 
but you can't get too upset about too much at that hour. Uh, that is something we were actually quite jealous of over here at that point was college radio because now, you know, six music is basically college radio round the clock. And there'd been a couple of other stations like XFM and so on. All we had at that point was on Radio 1, the evening session, which is kind of a junior school version of college radio and John Peel late at night doing weird and college radio. And that was <laughs> it. You had a couple of hours a week. And we used to, you know, I genuinely used to think, I used to hear about radio stations playing, you know, bands like Moose on rotation in America and thinking, how is that allowed? How is that possible? Oh, I do know that with some of those, I mean, obviously you couldn't play certain things, but there was just this kind of wild freedom, which I think is, you know, obviously transferred more to, you know, the online world. But yeah, it was just sort of let them play quietly and, you know, then they'll behave themselves. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which is something that admittedly I've got no familiarity with at all. I could not even find anything to use a clip here, so I don't know what I'm going to put in. I'll just surprise everyone and then we can discuss what it is. Okay, whatever I've used there is to represent Wizards Hall. Genevieve, what Wizard and what hall? This is a sort of children's middle grade reader by Jane Yolen. Now, she is an incredibly prolific author in the United States. She has written something like over 400 books, children's books, poetry, picture books, some books for adults. This woman is now in her 80s and she's still, you know, going at it. And she wrote this book about 1991 and I had to reread it recently just to have a look at it. And it's about a boy named Henry who gets this idea that maybe he should be a wizard. And his mother says, well, yep, you should do that. Why don't you get to it. And he goes off to this place called Wizard's Hall, which is a school to learn how to become a wizard. And he has two friends, a girl named Tansy, who's this little black girl with three braids in her hair, and a red-headed boy is also there to kind of help him out and get used to this place. And it does sound a bit like another book that later came out <laughs> by one J.K. Rowling. It's just, it's not part of a series. It was a single book. And also part of the plot is, you know, he's there. He's nothing really special special, but he's there to try hard as his mother told him to. And then they have to, the school has to face down this evil wizard who had once worked at the school and who also has a fearsome beast. So not only does he have to save his new friends and the school and possibly the world at large. And it does have like I said, some striking similarities but it's unlikely that J.K. Rowling ever read it. At least this is what we assume. And Jane Yolen has mentioned it and she doesn't seem terribly bothered by it. I mean, when you've written over 400 books, you don't get too bothered by what other people are doing. I did find an interview with her where she said that she didn't think J.K. Rowling would have read it. And that as far as she was concerned, sometimes the same idea just occurs to different people. Yeah. That's an interesting thing, because recently on my Marvel podcast, it's good to accept it sucks. We've been talking about the TV special of 
of Werewolf by Night, which has Man-Thing in it. And the odd thing is, the creator of Man-Thing shared a flat with the creator of DC's Swamp Thing, who were almost, in some ways, almost the same character superficially, who made their debut within weeks of each other with rival publishers. Right. And they both said, neither of us stole the idea from each other. It was because we were living in close quarters to talk about the same things. We obviously both came up with the same idea at the same time. And it does happen. So I would imagine there's enough crimes we can pin on J.K. Rowling as it is. Mm. I don't think we can have (laughs) unconscious plagiarism, as the judge said about George Harrison, to that list. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. And, you know, the whole idea of someone going off to school and having to save the world. I mean, that's, you know, a very common sort of theme. My friend Betsy Cornwell also kind of experienced this one where she wrote a book and, you know, it came out and not long after another book kind of came out and there were comparisons and, you know, people were like, oh, did you you stole from this author and so on. But it's just, there are a lot of similar stories in this world and what each author does with them, you know, is another thing. And I think this is a really lovely book on its own. I remember my mother giving it to me and just reading it in one day and just really loving it in general because I've always been a fan of Jane Yolen. I met her when I was about eight years old and just thought she was amazing. And she is another one of those people that made me think, oh, I could be a writer. She was, you know, very creative in what she wrote and still is. I mean, I don't think I'll ever write children's books. I don't never say never, but I do think that, yeah, some of those early writers, you saw what you could do with a story and, you know, how it can make someone feel. And it just sort of made me think when I actually met someone in person, like, oh, wait, these authors aren't just imaginary figures. They're real people doing this. And it did sort of spark that feeling of, oh, I would love to do that one day. Took me a little while longer, but, you know, got there in the end. I remember her signing my book that I had a copy. It was a picture book, Picnic with Piggins, which is actually part of a very funny series of books of, you know, mysteries being solved in a fancy house that is lived in by a bunch of foxes. And their butler is the pig who is much smarter than everyone else and finds out who's stolen the diamond and so on. So sort of an early entry into murder mysteries and things like that for an eight-year-old. Yeah, I don't recall any advice, but her enthusiasm for stories and how much fun it is to tell them, that I think was enough. Probably her most well-known work is The Devil's Arithmetic, which is a really peculiar kind of magical realism. It's about the Holocaust. It starts in the modern day, and this character is like about to celebrate Passover, and she ends up sort of stepping back in time and ends up, you know, in a camp, and that's her fight for survival. And it's really the kind of book that has upset people at times, but reading it as a child, it you know, it left such a strong impression upon me in terms of storytelling and also telling about this horrific period in history. But it was very sensitively done so that, you know, it isn't total horror or anything like that for exploitation. But it was definitely a book that left a lasting impression. You know, considering some of the stuff going on in the United States right now about what children should be allowed to read, I sort of think this should still be handed out to people. That's probably like the biggest book she's known for. The woman has written so many books that I don't even know where to begin at times. But I also would recommend Wizard's Hall 
world for people with kids who like sci-fi and fantasy and want something that doesn't have such a sense of controversy around it right now. It's just it's a beautifully written book. Well, mentioning controversy is interesting because one thing I was going to bring up was I cannot find any trace anywhere of any sort of adaptation of Wizards Hall, not even an audio book. And I was hoping there'd be one, you know, to use for a clip for this. But I don't think there would be one no. now because, you know, Harry Potter has happened. I think it would make also a wonderful limited series adaptation, just even though, you know, people see the similarities. It just has a very different personality to it. Okay, well, speaking of very different personalities, moving on to your last choice now, which is something I've really been looking forward to talking about. I had no idea about this until you mentioned it. And amazingly, I found an advert for it. Oh, fantastic. Dear Blank, this is a television chain letter promoting OK Soda. Tandy of Little Rock, Arkansas declined a can of OK, then stepped onto an elevator that got stuck between floors for six hours. Happily, the other people in it, mostly third graders, knew an impressive range of knock-knock jokes and the time seemed to pass quickly. While this is only a coincidence, Tom now drinks several cans of OK each day and shares our belief that things are going to be OK. Okay, whatever you think was going on there, that was actually an advert for OK Soda. <laughs> I've got plenty to say about that name, but Genevieve, just fill us in on the background first, please. It was a soda put out by the Coca-Cola company, and the whole advertising scheme was very postmodern and definitely marketed towards Generation X. And it was only in certain markets for about two, maybe three years at most. But the ad campaign was kind of more loud than the actual flavor of the soda. I mean, what I recall about the soda, it was kind of vaguely fruity, floral. It kind of tasted like you put all of the sodas in one bottle. But the ads were kind of exciting. They had art on the cans by comic book artists. You could call up a 1-800 number to hear messages, leave messages. It had kind of a conspiracy edge to it, which kind of worked really well with like the rise of things like the X-Files coming on television. You know, it was kind of cool, hip, soda but such a carefully created ad campaign and i know that it was created by the guy who put together new coke yes which i'm gonna say even the side of the questions i've got about this was about less than a year after they tried and failed to launch tab clear over here which is an expensive write-off new oh coke is one of the biggest commercial disasters in yes. food and drink history why did they give him another go <laughs> maybe he just had a lot of charisma or he, <laughs> this was like his last chance but we've just got to get out of the way i cannot go over the fact that i know it's deliberate on their part i know it's supposed to be ironic and you know deliberately downplayed and so on but calling it okay that's just asking for joy it's like there was a rave record by the 49ers that had somebody <laughs> shouting this beat is okay it's not good it's just okay all those people half-heartedly dancing in quadrant par you can use that with the soda as well it was it was okay it wasn't you know terrible <laughs> and, and you know Fun. They said explicitly that it was designed to appeal to Generation X. Now, the first thing that I got in my head, in The Simpsons, where Troy McClure refers to which is gradually as beloved of everyone, even cynical members of Generation X, and it cuts to a boy in sort of a Pearl Jam t-shirt saying, yeah, groovy, with quote marks. <laughs> you know, you're older than the audience that you're trying to appeal to, who are cynical by definition. They do not like marketing. They don't like being told what's great. The whole thing just smacks of a, however well it was 
was done. A really bad idea, especially because they're doing around the same time. I don't think it made it interesting, but we have Virgin Cola, which is launched by Richard Branson, who I don't know how he ever managed to pull this off, but he built an entire career on saying, I'm the outsider, I'm providing the alternative to the big corporate <laughs> organisations. Oh, you know what he did with planes, he did with record shops, he did with pretty much everything, and got radio station and got away with it. Healthcare. Fooled us all again and again and again. But he did Virgin Cola, where it went overboard on the glitz and glamour and the neon-toned adverts and Pamela Anderson plugging it. And in fact, the bottle design was based on her body shape and so on. And it just didn't take off. Everything about this, it's deliberately anti-publicity. It's like as if somebody made the band XCNN into a drink. Oh, that's a niche reference. But like I say, <laughs> it's all... I think the art campaign was devised by Daniel Close, who did Ghost World. And yes. it's all very sort of downplay although he has said that he designed kind of the face of the mascot after Charles Manson because he said it didn't say anywhere in the contract don't put a mass murderer on the can now that is truly Gen X just to slip in <laughs> something like that because yeah if there was nothing in in any kind of thing like well you can't do and I think because of things like that of course now in advertising there's a lot more carefully observed and I say this as someone who's done some advertising work around packaging they watch everything you do now and you know it goes through so many layers of focus groups to make and also just people who spend their time checking to make sure this doesn't reference nazis does it as well as that it's just it's trying to appeal to a not just an age group but a sort of a moment of that age group who were particularly suspicious of and resentful of advertising you know, think of generation x meet think of things like steal this book prozac nation michael Moore's tv nation television the drug of the nation by supposable heroes to hypocrisy there's a lot of nation involved in generation x how do you convince somebody who thinks you are i'm going to say somebody who thinks the coca-cola corporation is evil to drink a cola that you're manufacturing it just doesn't seem to make any kind of sense at all and yet they did it kind of worked for a little while i think maybe if you just lay your soul bare like yeah we're kind of evil but here's something for you because we're thinking about you i know i was in my early teens at the time and it was sort of entertaining it seemed a novelty. It didn't have any sort of... The problem with it is that there was no immediate loyalty. It was always going to be novelty. So, of course, it wasn't going to last. At least what you're getting into and you know it's going to be consistent and it's just there kind of like a slightly terrible father. But, you know, it provides you with what you need. And OK Soda is weird, cool cousin uncle. You don't know if you'd want to, like, hang out with all that often, but, you know, they're kind of entertaining and, you know, they can buy you booze. Well, I've literally just noticed two extra details about it now that somehow passed me by before now which is one the whole okay because there were all these slogans based on being okay like the better you understand something the more okay it turns out to be and okay so that emphatically rejects anything that's not okay and fully supports anything that is was based on that 70 self-help book i'm okay yes. you're okay which you know even within a decade of that being published bowie had done i'm okay you're so so on up the hill backwards so <laughs> that whole notion was a little out of date but the other thing is i didn't know this apparently there were vending machines that had random cans sort of dubby prize cans when you open them they had like a hat or yeah. a t-shirt which would kind of be sort of a bother if you were actually looking to get something to drink and you only had so much change on you you're like <laughs> What am I going to do with this hat? It's amazing how people form an attachment even when the mass market is not attached to them in any way whatsoever. Yeah, and it's often just, you know, that moment in time. I remember 
clear Pepsi. And it was my camp counselor one year. It was her dad who worked for the Pepsi company. And she was telling us all about this product that was going to be coming out and how she tried it. And she said it tasted exactly like Pepsi, but, you know, clear. And then, you know, a few months later, we see it in, you know, the shops. I remember my friends and I trying it and it just it didn't sit right with us. Like you expect brown <laughs> and this just like, what is this? Something is unholy here. We're not going to touch this. <laughs> would you, if they relaunched OK Cola, would you go out and get it? Or was the actual hype and the advertising more exciting than the drink itself? If I'm honest, I think the hype of the advertising and the packaging were a lot more interesting. I think maybe I might try the soda just to see if my memory still matches up with it being kind of underwhelming. Like I said, because I, you know, later went to work around advertising within packaging it was kind of like a wonderful thing to kind of think back on like oh this was brilliant to a point but they didn't know how to like that's the thing with items like this you have to kind of think beyond the first splash you know where can i go with this next and i don't think they had considered you know they wanted to invent loyalty right away and you can't really do that (laughs) it has to be kind of organic that's the thing at least with original coca-cola it had cocaine in it to kind of you know create the loyalty you know, and then eventually they had to remove it. So maybe that was their problem. They should have put really good drugs in the OK soda. Well, what if they relaunched it and you went hoping to get a can of it with some OK drugs in and you got a hat in the prize card instead? Uh, well, I guess I just have to, you know, sell it. I'll put it on the free giveaway email list or, you know, sell it for drugs. <laughs> I can't think of a more wholesome note to end on. <laughs> Genevieve, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream, Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org.